the party has been fighting corruption with varying degrees of intensity for 70 years. And this year, 2022, he was taking out as many senior people as he was at the beginning of the campaign. So my sense is he's sitting atop a party that he believes is rotten to the core. Hi, I'm Dan Huff, Professor of Politics at the University of Sussex, and I'm delighted to be hosting this episode of Kickback. Today, we're going to talk about a country and a set of anti-corruption policies and, and set of thoughts that I think have been a bit under-researched over the years on this podcast, and that's China. As many people will know, Chinese leaders, and, and Xi Jinping in particular, has talked a lot about fighting corruption over the last decade or so, but we're going to ask whether any genuine improvements have been made, what they look like. Was this really all about corruption or was it maybe about something else? Um, I'm hoping to sort of get a little bit more insight into where the Middle Kingdom has come from and is going to in its fight against corruption. Now, there's probably no better person around to speak to about this than Professor Andrew Vederman, who's uh, from the political science department at Georgia State University. He was writing about corruption in China way before Xi Jinping was uh, uh, was leading the country. Um, and he's been writing about it in, in all sorts of interesting ways, often with a political economy focus, as I say, for, for the best part of two decades. So I'm really pleased to be welcoming Andrew to the podcast. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm great. I'm glad, uh, glad to be here. Good, good. Well, I'm going to start with a very basic question, if that's okay with you. How does how, how does an American scholar come to be interested in Chinese politics and indeed Chinese anti-corruption? Oh, that's a long, complicated story. <laughs> uh, I actually, I spent time in Korea when I was a kid and got interested in uh, Asia. Uh, my original interest was in Southeast Asia. I spent some time there in the early 1970s during the war. I was 14. I was not a participant, directly at least, and I uh, got interested in that. And then in the early 80s, when I decided to get my PhD, I made an incredible discovery, which was no one in the United States wanted to hear the name Vietnam ever again. Um, <laughs> and so I, uh, I ended up writing, uh, I wrote a five-page paper in my first year of graduate school that turned into a book the year after I got out of graduate school, and that was on China. And so when I went back to get my PhD, if you have a book on China, you do China. But uh, it's, a, it's a decision I've never regretted. It's a fascinating country. And um, I have really been working on corruption since the early or since the late 80s, uh, initially looking at uh, what I call organizational corruption, which was actually local governments usurping their authority uh, in defiance of state policies uh, to pursue gains. And then uh, I went on and uh, did some work in the 90s and fortune or misfortune to publish a book, um, Double Paradox, looking at how do you explain the fact that China has such, you have rising corruption and rapid growth, you have rising predatory corruption, which is the bad kind of corruption, that book came out the same month that the uh, Boshi Lai case uh, mm -hmm. burst onto the scene. 
So my uh, my thought that maybe I would move on from corruption was immediately squashed, and I have spent the last ten years studying the, the current anti-corruption uh, crackdown. Well, I do say your PhD never leaves you. You can try and run away from it, but it, it never leaves you. It always keeps coming back. Yeah, uh, and I think yeah. it sounds like yours is a good case in point for for that. Before we we get to Xi Jinping, then now. Can you talk us through what happened in terms of anti-corruption before Xi Jinping? Because previous Chinese governments have often talked about corruption, haven't they? Was was there much progress? Did they try and do the same sort of things? Well, uh, actually, uh, the, the the party has been fighting corruption since the nineteen twenties. Uh, in the nineteen fifties, they launched a series of massive anti-corruption campaigns: the five antis, the three antis, the new three antis. And in many ways, the Cultural Revolution itself was a massive anti-corruption campaign, campaign against uh, cadres usurping their power for personal gain. The efforts in those days, they were conducted in what's known as a mass campaign style. Uh, Cadres would come and identify people who were uh, suspected of corruption, and then they would uh, mobilize the masses to struggle against them and literally to beat them, denounce them, etc. Well, coming into the reform era, Deng Xiaoping, of course, moved away from the kind of cultural revolution model of uh, the mass campaigns, and they switched to uh, to a more legalistic campaign. Of course, coming into the reform period, they had no criminal code. They promulgated a criminal code. They have spent a lot of time refining the criminal code. Um, and in the early 80s, they became, you know, the party became aware that there was rising corruption. They launched three significant anti-corruption campaigns, one in 1982, one in 1986. The biggest one was in 1989, began immediately after Tiananmen and was in direct response to the fact that one of the precipitating factors of Tiananmen was anger over official corruption and what, uh, what they used to call profiteering. All those campaigns were aimed at rank-and-file corruption. In the mid-1990s, it became evident that that there was a problem at the mid-level. And so in 1993 and 94, Johnson then launched a new anti-corruption campaign targeting mid-level officials. And so the number of people uh, investigated or at the uh, county, the uh, prefecture, and the bureau level uh, went up from 800 a year to 2,400 a year, fairly significantly. And that campaign has, conti- both those campaigns actually have continued. You know, what they do is they stepped it up. It's a kind of stepping up process. Well, when Xi Jinping was getting ready to become general secretary, there are a number of cases, which, one of which is the Bo Lai case. Of course, Bo Lai, member of the Politburo, very prominent in many ways was thought of as he wasn't a rival for the general secretaryship role. And the decision was made to what had been made to make Xi Jinping the uh, the general secretary. But he was very visible. Uh, February 2012, the uh, former uh, director of the Chongqing uh, Public Security Bureau finds his way to the American consulate in Chengdu in the, the neighboring province of Sichuan and uh, basically spills the beans that Bo Lai's wife murdered an English businessman. Um, this kind of blows the lid off things. You know, it, goes, it goes public. The, the murder actually been in November of 2011. 
But what happens, and I, I, my sense of my talking to people is Xi Jinping and Hu Jintao knew they had a major problem with high-level corruption. And so what Xi Jinping does in 2013 is he steps from, you know, the night from uh, the Jinping rank and file, uh, Jiang Zemin, mid-level, he goes up to the top. And since 2012, they have taken down uh, 411 senior officials, senior military officials. They just got their yeah, 411th was just taken down this morning. And, you know, it's been a fairly sustained campaign. The peak is in 2015, but the reality is it has dragged on and on for a decade. And they're taking out anywhere from two to three dozen senior officials every year. And by senior officials, we're talking vice ministerial, vice governor, and above. Five members of the Politburo, uh, two heads of the Central Military Commission, one member, one member of the Standing Committee of the Politburo. So it's been a big deal. You earlier asked, was it about corruption or was it about something else? And the answer is yes, it's about both. At the high level, there certainly is a an element to it. Uh, Bo Xilai was a potential rival, and the fact that his wife went out and murdered one of your, your compatriots um, is like a gift on a golden platter. I mean, it gives Xi Jinping the opportunity to go after him. And of course, the other person he went after was Zhou uh, uh, Yang Khan, who had been in the Politburo Standing Committee. And... He had retired in November 2012, but he had this, he had occupied a series of powerful positions. He'd been the head of the Chinese National Petroleum Company. He had been the Minister of State Land and Resources. He had been the Party Secretary of Sichuan. He had been the Minister of Public Security. And his last job was he was Secretary of something called the Central Committee Politics and Law Committee. It controls China's internal security apparatus. A very powerful. So it's man. a big deal. Oh, a big deal. That's the police. He was retired. And uh, I think in many ways uh, for Xi Jinping, going after him also was advantageous. The thing is about Zhou Yantang is, uh, is the people that were associated with him, they're all second rankers. I mean, they were senior, but they were not, you know, political rivals. The other major figure that he takes out is a guy named uh, Ling Jiwa. And Ling Jiwa is interesting. He was not a member of the Politburo. He was Hu Jintao's personal secretary and right-hand man. And he, the, the thinking in 2012 was that he would get into the Politburo. And he would be Hu Jintao's eyes and ears. Well, four o'clock in the morning. On March 18th, his son plowed a 500-pound Ferrari into a bridge abutment. Um, again, for very it's a great opportunity to to undermine Hu Jintao. But that begs the question: Are the two of them rivals? And the answer, to me, the answer has to be no, because how could Xi Jinping have become General Secretary if Hu Jintao? And Jiang Zemin opposed him. I mean, who's the man behind the, there's no man behind the curtain. There's no Deng Xiaoping. So that 
you know, that part of the story you can spin as a factional fight, but it's the rest of it. It's the bulk of it. Even at the senior levels, the majority, I, but I think it's of the, it's 66% of the civilian tigers, this is what they call the senior people, have no clear factional affiliation. And my sense is they're corrupt. So he's doing two things at once, even at the senior level. 90 plus percent of the people being swept up in the campaign, they're rank and filers. I mean, some village secretary down in uh, Guangxi, where your wife is from, Xi Jinping is not going after this guy. Now, there may be local politics at play in terms of who the uh, discipline inspection and the supervisory people are going after, but it's... You know, it is a it is a true anti-corruption campaign. And I think what you have to keep in mind, or what I sense is, I think Xi Jinping is a very desperate man. He is looking at a party where he knows high-level corruption ballooned in the 1990s and infected even the top levels. Even the Politburo was people in the Politburo being corrupt. The party has been fighting corruption with varying degrees of intensity for 70 years. And this year, or last year, uh, 2022, he was taking out as many senior people as he was at the beginning of the campaign. So my sense is he's sitting atop a party that he believes is rotten to the core. And he's fighting a desperate battle. And it's not just against factional rivals. It's against a party that seems totally resistant to change. And the reason I say that is, is one of the things that I look at is I look at when people start being corrupt. Lots of people were corrupt before the campaign. And viewed without a batting an eye as the campaign's fury raged. Others became corrupt after the advent of the campaign. And so when you look at an anti-corruption campaign, you've got to think about it. It's not single purpose. It's not just to take out the bad apples. It's to, as the Chinese say, you kill the monkey to scare the chickens. And it's not working because people are, you, you see this day in, day out, month in, month out, they're taking out people. And yeah. people are still turning corrupt. They're yeah. not paralyzed. They're not afraid. Uh, they still think, uh, you know, that guy was that guy was unlucky and unloved, and I can get away with it. Yeah, you know, that's so many questions on that, and just a fascinating sort of tour de force through through Chinese Chinese history. There, I mean, if any Hollywood filmmakers are listening to this, by the way, the Boshi Lai case, you know, you, you get all over it. I mean, it, it is a br a brilliant dramatic story, uh, in, including murder, corruption, you know, the, the whole lot. It, it, it is worth looking into further if it, if the case is a new one for any of our listeners out there. With with Zoyun Kang, so the highest ranked individual. Mm -hmm. Who has been uh, who has been prosecuted for for corruption? Am I right in saying that there was sort of a, a rubricon cross there, wasn't there? Because before him, you didn't really prosecute people at that level. They were seen as drifting off into retirement and almost untouchable. And I think there was quite a few eyebrows raised when when Xi Jinping went after someone that high. Is that right? 
Well, they had they had taken out two members of the Politburo earlier in 1995. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took down Chen Shi Tong, who was the first party secretary of Beijing. And he was pretty prominent because he had played a major visible role during the suppression of the uh, anti-government demonstrations in 1989. They then also took down uh, Chen Liang Yu, no relation between the two, mm-hmm. uh, who was the party secretary of Shanghai. And he was a close political ally of Jiang Zemin. Uh, now, in both cases, they get caught up in scandals that are kind of just burst on the scene. So in the case of Chen Shitong, he had been he and the party apparatus had been raking off these huge commissions from developers. Well, being smart money managers, they were looking for a place to park the money. Uh, and they chose a scheme that turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. And when it went bad, as I recall, two or 400 uh, government units had been parking their money in this scheme. Uh, and they started screaming bloody murder. So the, the central authorities dispatch a, a team of investigators down to the city of Wuxi and uh, Jiangsu. And they investigated and literally they run across two senior um, uh, Beijing officials with bags of money, which they have brought down. Uh, what happens then is they take them back to Beijing. Uh, they question them. One of them is a deputy mayor. And Chen Shi Tong is part of the uh, the investigation. So they question this guy and he's evasive and so forth. They let him go. He goes out to his luxury villa. Uh, red flag there. Chinese officials aren't supposed to have luxury villas. And he blows his brains out, which just you know, it just explodes, and ultimately, you know, they trace it back to uh, Chen Shihong. Uh, the case of Liang Yu in Shanghai, they were they had a municipal pension fund, which they were supposed to be putting into the Pudong Development Bank. Well, routine audit, there's no money. <laughs> no money has been paid into the accounts. And so they ask where it is. Well, it turns out that Chen Shitong had been lending it out to all of his cronies. He gets caught. And in the case of uh, Chen Shitong in Beijing, he had lots of political enemies. Chen Liangyu also had lots of political enemies within the uh, what they used to call the Shanghai Gang, which was mm-hmm. Johnson Min's people. But Dong, you know, he couldn't he couldn't save the guy and ultimately he gets wiped out. So Chen Shitong, I mean uh, uh Joyeon Kang is one step up, but it's not, you know, the precedent really. It's not truly unique. Okay, we were yeah, getting Yeah, it's there. not as yeah. unique as it is. As... And I had a question about process there, Andrew, because, of mm. course, the, the impression we have is that, that there's no real external uh, external actors involved in this. If the party decides it's coming for you, then it comes for you, right? Um, what, 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 what sort of role is the law of the land an external prosecutor's got in this? And and to what extent is this seen as party officials behaving in a way which is detrimental to the party? So we go for them internally, as it were. Is there a divide there? Or Well, there is a divide. The way the process works is that origi- up until 2017, an organization called the Central Discipline Inspection Commission, which is a party app, uh, organization, it had, pr- it had primary jurisdiction over party members. There was another organization called the Ministry of Supervision, and it had primary uh, jurisdiction over state officials. 
Well, of course, state officials and party members tend to be the same thing. So the two of them actually started working together in 1993. And the way it worked is that, as I understand, the division of labor was that the party's discipline inspection commission dealt with party members, individuals, the supervisory ministry, uh, the ministry of supervision dealt with organizational problems. And it always played second fiddle. In 2018, they merged, they formally merged those two bodies so that it's now a party organization and a state organization at the same time. So it's pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah the Ministry of Supervision really never had any real power. It all okay. Party. Mm. They also rolled into this new thing called the Supervisory Commission. They rolled in the Anti-Corruption Bureau the kind of formal justification for this was in the name of efficiency. The thing is, the party doesn't have any legal authority. So when they generate evidence, they generate it as a party, not as the state and not as the judiciary. And so the complaint that I heard over and over again is that they didn't really know how to fill out the proper forms and the proper uh, proper ways. And so that what they would what they did was to have the judiciary go in and get the evidence in better shape for when they went to court. Well, under the old rules, they could take you into custody. You were not detained legally, you were detained because you were part, you had you voluntarily joined the party. So the phrase when they announced investigations is so and so has um, agreed to be investigated in effect. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's not a real choice. And in the old days, literally, they could hold you indefinitely. And the bottom line is once they had you in your their clutches, uh, it was a matter of time bet- before you ultimately caved in and, and confessed. Well, under the old system, that confession actually wasn't legal because it wasn't, it was a party and so there were cases, I, I understand, where they got to court and it was thrown out. And so what they've now done is Kiranui participates in getting the confession. And so when they get to court, it's a, it's a legal document. The reality always was, and this is true in almost all kinds of criminal cases, once you're arrested, what happens is there's an investigation. And the investigators decide whether you have committed an offense that requires a criminal prosecution. If we look at corruption, and the the data have broken down in recent years because they've become less forthcoming, less than half of the people who get investigated end up going to trial. So a lot of them end up with administrative sanctions. They get fired, they get demoted, they get a warning, they get my favorite, they get a serious warning, which I guess is a warning with a wag of the finger. So a lot of them get off. They don't actually end up in prison. Once you go to trial, you're guilty. And the question is, how guilty do you feel? And what the court, what, what happens when you, when you have a trial is prosecutor reads the evidence, the defendants respond, uh, the prosecutor reads the evidence again, and if you're smart, you plead guilty. 
And in between, what will happen is defendants will say, well, you're accusing me of, of taking 100,000 in bribes, but I really only took 75,000. And you see, you know, they actually will go back and forth and the courts actually will rule some things weren't. Um, and then, you know, at the end, the, uh, the judge evaluates how cooperative you were, and that will set the sentence. So what the trial is really about is not guilt or innocence, it's about the sentence. And if you've been cooperative, if you're contrite, if you uh, say the right things, you know, you'll get a later sentence. If you're Boshi lie and you actually, you know, because when they did his trial, it's actually live. You know, he fought back, did not do him do him well, but he was he was going down anyway. So, and it, the reality is, to the, the, the death penalty was invoked with Boshi lie, wasn't it? But then it was revoked back to life yeah, in prison. Uh, is that right? No. Uh, what well, he did not get the death penalty. I'd, I'd have to look it up, but he was—he's still in jail. He's been yeah, a lifetime in prison now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 And the prison they're in is not exactly—they're uh, not doing hard time. Uh, they're in the prison of Beijing, which uh, I think Lai spends his days doing calligraphy, and Zhou Yan Kong is taking the gardening. I assume being in a Chinese prison is not pleasant, but it could be a whole lot worse. Yeah. So the question, your question is, the investigation, the marshalling of the evidence is largely conducted by the party, but the end result is in the judiciary. Mm -hmm. And there is, you know, there is, you know, you read these transcripts of trials and they will cite the statutes that people are being convicted on. There is a legal, uh, a legal element to it all the decisions have already been made. And it is the party that decides if you, you know, they take, they, they, these days they investigate about 600,000 people a year. They're only actually convicting about 20,000. So there's a lot of leakage. And the one thing about the party numbers is they don't tell you what they're investigating them for. I mean, how many are in there for not paying their party dues? How many are in there for you know, failing the test on Marxism, Leninism. We just don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, the one thing about the Chinese is the law matters in a sense. The law dictates the way things are done, but it doesn't dictate the outcome. That's really, I mean, I could, could ask many more questions about this. That, that, that's a fascinating sort of set of processes. But I wanted to go back to something you actually said right right at the beginning um, there, when you said that the Communist Party has been fighting corruption basically since since it was founded. Um, so what does that mean for, for the end of this process? I mean, I guess there is no end. We, we will keep seeing Chinese leaders uh, fight corruption moving forward because there's plenty of it about. Or has Xi Jinping tried to end this uh, in some way so we can move on? What, 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 is there an end game at all in any of this? Well, I think I think you know I think Xi Jinping. If you read him, he he wants the party to be clean. He right. wants the party to serve the people. You know, a lot of the ideological stuff you see associated with him is he's trying to bring back this kind of notion of you know it, it's an authoritarian state, but it's a benevolent authoritarian state. It's one that is sensitive to the needs of the people. You know, and very much his whole narrative on uh, on Gorbachev and the Soviet Union is that the party got soft, the party didn't rule, we can't hold this, you know, we have to have a strong rule of the party, 
uh, in order to hold things together because otherwise everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. Um, so the reality is he's fighting hard. And the big question is, after 10 years, is he made progress? Has he actually reduced it? Back in 2012, when I wrote the other, the first book, the Double Paradox book, I basically thought he had it under control, that, or his predecessors had it under control, that they hadn't necessarily reduced corruption, but they had prevented it from getting worse. Well, the one thing about Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign is, well, it proved I was completely wrong, um, that in fact, uh, high-level corruption was exploding in this period when I said it was under control. So, you know, the, the book I'm working on now is called The Third Paradox, Rapid Growth, Rising Corruption, and Failing Anti-Corruption. So my sense is that until Xi Jinping came along, in fact, corruption was getting worse and worse. Sitting here today in 2023, I cannot really tell you if it's better than it was in 2015. The fact that 10 years, after 10 years of intensive anti-corruption work, last year they took down 36 senior people. They have taken down eight senior people in the first three months of this year. And to me, that says that they're in fact not making progress. That these guys that they're taking now down now, they were not senior people in 2013. They were lower ranked and that what is happening is they are not only evading the corruption dragnet, but they are getting promoted. And when you get promoted in China, you're supposed to go through an audit that is looking for evidence of illegal activity. Well, these guys are not only evading the supervisory commission, they're also evading the organizational department and they are getting pushed into the top. So my sense is that the answer is that it's not, it, there's no evidence that he's reduced corruption. Has he managed to control corruption at its current level? Perhaps. But I think, you know, and this goes back to, to what I was grappling with in my earlier book. You know, the economy, if you look at the economy, at the same time corruption is taking off, the economy is booming. Anti-corruption campaign hits, economy begins to slump. Now, the slump is largely not due to corruption. I mean, it's, you know, the trade war with the United States, it's COVID, it's a natural slowing of the economy. And so, you know, you got this, this kind of, this true conundrum, which is, does corruption in China really matter? Or is it simply part of the system? It's, it's, you know, there's a coefficient, there's a certain drag on it, but the system somehow functions despite corruption. And that when you really get into the grander sweep of history, Chinese governments have been fighting corruption since they invented bureaucracy before the current era. I mean, China, in a sense, really invented corruption because we had a bureaucracy, you couldn't really have corruption. But, you know, some of the institutions that Xi Jinping uses, like the, you know, the, the supervisory commission, they, one of the things they do is periodically they dispatch inspection teams to look at 
particular government agencies or uh, jurisdictions, has its direct parallel in something called the censorate, which is part of the imperial system. And as always, the, the, the real challenge for the central government is how do you penetrate into a bureaucracy the size of China's? You know, Chinese provinces, in many cases, are bigger than European countries. And they sit atop this vast hierarchy uh, that at the, the, the state's case goes all the way down to 2,300 counties. And below that are a myriad of villages, townships, et cetera, which are actually not even part of the state. They are communities. So if you're sitting in Zhongnan High next to the Forbidden City, how do you, how do you control what's happening down at the villages in Guangxi. You know, it's a, a terribly difficult uh, proposition, particularly if you have people who are colluding together, uh, people who in the Chinese parlance are providing protective umbrellas to each other, where they may be engaged in illegal activity, your subordinates may be, and how do you get around that? So, you know, if you look at the Chinese state in general, you have the state apparatus, Parallel to it, you have the party apparatus, and the function of the party apparatus is to watch the state apparatus. Well, parallel to that, you have the anti-corruption apparatus, whose job is to look at the party and the state and to be the watchdog for the watchdog, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I think in some ways, you know, it's 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 a, a long-term struggle. Um, it's a problem that's been around. And I think they've made some progress. I mean, the one thing about corruption in China is, you know, if you're pedaling around on your bicycle, you're very unlikely to have a policeman just stop you and shake you down. There's not a lot of that kind of street level corruption. It's mostly behind closed doors. And I think the, the one thing that, it, you know, you need to keep in mind at the end of the day is for those involved, Corruption often isn't a problem. Businesses will pay if they think they'll make a profit. And I don't have direct evidence in the case of China, but I did look at cases involving U.S. businesses that were prosecuted under what's called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And so we talk about quite a bit on this podcast, actually, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the provisions is that you have to disgorge the illicit profits. Well, if you looked at the size of the bribes that these American companies were paying and the amount of profits they were disgorging, it was a one to six ratio. For every dollar in bribes, six dollars of profit. Now, I'm a political scientist and obviously know nothing about money and investing, but I think a one to six rate of return, uh, if I could get that on my retirement account, I'd be very happy. I'm interested. Yeah, I'm interested for sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think the thing is that certainly, you know, corruption is a drag. No question yeah. about it. There's no question that corruption raises growth rates. But I think the, 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 the real dilemma in China is to decide what's fueling what. Is, is uh, you know, in a, in a sense, you know, my, my, my own sense is that uh, it's rapid growth that is corruption. And corruption is, they're just, you know, the officials are, in a sense, raking off a share of it. 
Is it bad? Probably. It's inefficient? Probably. Is it deadly? Maybe not. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's really interesting. And I, I'm in no way a China expert, as you sort of mentioned before. My wife is Chinese, so I, I do go to China, period, although not, not recently, but I do go periodically. But I often get the impression that many people in, in the Deep South, where, where my family is based, that they see the corruption problems in front of them. And they, they see Beijing as basically being on the moon. Um, but they would very much like Beijing to come and sort a lot of this stuff out. Uh, and so they don't see, I guess, what might well be the popular narratives in the West as as the high-level corruption in Beijing and, and lots of people there potentially doing bad things. In in, in Guangxi, um, Beijing needs to get over here now and, and begin clearing out these guys who are nicking property and, and these guys who are... You know, driving around in, in expensive cars with tainted windows. So, so I think I think people forget how big China is and how hard it is to run in any setting. Because, of course, twenty percent of the planet lives there, right? Yeah, and I mean, you're right. The high level corruption in Beijing, in the sense, you know, it's all behind closed doors. Yeah, uh, you know, it's almost invisible. Well, before Xi Jinping's, it was it was a bit too visible for the party's taste. You know. The son of a mid-level, well, senior official plowing into a bridge abutment with a half billion pound car. Doesn't look so good, that. Um, Doesn't look so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I, I think uh, it would have taken his father 80 years to earn enough money to have purchased that car. Actually, a state-owned enterprise had bought the car, which yeah. is bad in itself. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, at the local level, a lot of it, yeah. I mean, there is, you know, there is a, there certainly is a lot of it. It tends to be pretty visible. You can tell who the cadres are by their houses, by their cars, etc. And that's where, you know, to the, you know, there has been some public opinion polling about corruption in China, and the consistent response is, well, Beijing's not so bad, but the local cadres, they're horrible, and it's, you know, it's an, it's impressionistic. Uh, and certainly, I think a lot of people at the grassroots level would like to see it cleaned up. Because um, I said before, they've been cleaning it up in the case of the current regime since 1949. Still a lot of mess yeah. about. Um, and I think, you know, that, that, that eliminating it at the grassroots level is particularly hard, in part because grassroots cadres are not state officials. They're community representatives. Oftentimes they're not paid or they're very poorly paid. So what you see is, you know, I actually spent far too much time uh, looking at rank and file cases. You know, they're, they're pilfering state funds. Bribery is not all that common simply because you can't get blood out of a turnip. Uh, you can't you can't squeeze the peasant uh, the farmers because they don't really you know they don't have a lot of money. The big money is in terms you know you're raking off uh, money from land compensation. You're taking money from and oftentimes the amounts aren't all that large. But at the local level, where people don't have a lot of material wealth, those differences can be very evident and very magnifying and. Uh, the source of a great deal of discontent, particularly in areas where the villagers feel that the elections are all uh, stolen, to quote our glorious former leader, uh, which they often are. So, yeah, I mean, there is this how do you get how do you get accountability at the lower levels? How do you get 
officials to actually not look at office as something to be to, to get profit from. You know, they, they they have various problems. You know, officials are not well paid. And particularly if they look at their brother who jumped into the sea, as the Chinese say, jumped into the sea and went into business, you know, they're making big, big money. And me, I'm serving the people. And I'm, I'm not making a whole yeah, lot. Yeah, not making anything. So, like you know, when somebody comes along and says, you know, can you help me out with this? And, you know, they indicate that, uh, you know, I can help you with things. So why don't you borrow my car? Here's the keys. You know, it's not yours. You can just drive it around. Or, you know, I'm going to be on vacation all year. Why don't you live in my my villa? Um, there's a lot of that. And I think the temptation is often hard to overcome. It is interesting. There's a whole literature or there's a whole body of work of confessions. And when you look at confessions, they're pretty stylized. And in some ways, they tell you what the party wants you to think. But often, you know, you get the sense I joined the party because I wanted to make China better. I became an official because I wanted to serve the people. And then I got into office. And when I was at the low level, I did my job honestly. Nobody offered me anything. Then I got to be the boss. And I'm sitting in my office. And these people come in and they leave red envelopes on the desk. We chat amiably. They don't ask for anything, but they just forget, you know, their billfold, you know, and so forth. And what comes across over and over again is that, well, I felt I had to play the game because everyone is playing the game. And that if I don't play the game, people won't play with me and I won't get the cooperation I need. Although I must admit my favorite confession was the guy who said, well, you know, they left the money on the desk and I, I figured if I didn't take it, they would cry. What a kind heart. Yeah, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't stand the sight of tears. So I'll take that. I'll take that 50,000. You know, it is, you know, I, you know, it is this mix that, you know, I think at one level, they, they, you know, officials do want to be honest and upright. But the temptation is there. And, yeah. and has cases, COVID affected this at all? I mean, I, that's probably an unanswerable question because it's far, it's, we're, still, we're still only just out of it. But what, what's your impression of the impact of COVID on, on these processes? I, I, I'm completely in the dark. Too soon um, to tell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just have no way. I, in some ways, you know, the, the, the breakdown of access or the loss of access over the past couple of years it's kind of just been debilitating. I, I don't, you know, I, I can't confess to have any idea what China's like today compared to when last time I was there. I just, you know, I haven't, I lived there, last time I lived there was 2011. And, you know, went back quite frequently, but, you know, since 2019, we're back to kind of the, the bamboo curtain. Uh, my first experience with China was going to Hong Kong and going up to Lo Wu uh, yeah. up on the border and staring at red China through binoculars mm-hmm. um, and, you know, having a sense that you could never go there. And, uh, you know, I, it's not as closed off as it was, but you're kind of limited to uh, to what comes out through the Chinese press. I mean, I was, I've been working on this book and going back and, and looking at the coverage uh, from the early days of the campaign, and it's lively, and the New York Times is in there, South China Morning Post, and others as well. 
And now it's basically, it's basically chinois. Okay. And most of the outlets are ponying off them. Uh, occasionally there'll be some, you know, when we get a little bit off the, the, the reservation, but uh, you know, just the coverage has just become the official line and we just don't have the kind of access, which is really too bad. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine for, for, for someone like yourself who, who, who has worked over decades on China, it, it must be almost like having your arm cut off in a way. I mean, you, you're, you know, you need you need to live and breathe this stuff, right? So you can yeah. you can get a grip on what's really happening. Well, I mean, it's in some ways today, actually getting information is easier because a lot of it's on the internet. It's not like yeah. having to go to Hong Kong for six weeks every summer to to do the archival work and then go to Beijing to to do the circuit, but you, there's been a real shutdown, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, you know, access, but also communications is broken down. I don't have the same kind of interaction with my Chinese colleagues I used to. And it's, it's part of the, you know, the increasingly hostile relationship between the, the two countries. I was going to ask you about the corruption angle there. So, I mean, it's very hard to study corruption in China. One, because, as you've said, um, the, the, the information coming out is not always that useful. And two, of course, there's a language challenge. And there are there are not that many folks outside of China who, who speak Chinese. Uh, and, and, you know, and are in the position that you're in where you, you can read and understand what's going on. So as anti-corruption researchers moving forward, what should we look out for in China? What, what, what should we keep an eye on in, in, in the good press that does try and report on China? What sort of events are going to be key here in understanding where China's going in terms of its anti-corruption fight? Well, I, I wish I had a good answer for you, because to me, what we're in, it's just it's it's a it's a drag out war of attrition. Okay. And it's just endless body count. And are they making any breakthroughs? They've tried all sorts of different innovations. They've created this new supervisory commission. They're continually working on mechanisms to try and make it harder. So, you know, it used to be you had you could pay fines and cash. You can't do that anymore. Um, they're really moving to try and get rid of cash as a medium. And, Just try know, and buy coffee on any Chinese high street. It's impossible. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, you know, once you have electronic currency, you can monitor it, you know, and that, you know, theoretically would help uh, with corruption. But, of course, being creative, how do you get around it? You give out shopping cards, shopping cards. But even then, they should be able to track who's buying the shopping cards. But it's, you know, it's a colossal task. Um, And, you know, I think the thing that, you know, you really need to keep in mind is that, Anti-corruption is not a blitzkrieg. It's a protracted war. And in the United States, it took a long time to get from the Gilded Age through the Progressive Age to the point now there, we have not eliminated corruption in the United States. In many ways, we kind of legalized it in the form of campaign uh, finance. And, you know, how do, you know, for China, with a tradition of over 2,000 years of extensive bureaucratic corruption, and in a sense, having a bureaucratic culture, which you know verbally rejects corruption, but tacitly accepts it um, as just part of the, the, the normal way of doing things, that's hard to overcome. And it's not something you can do in a, a couple of years. 
there's no bolt from the blue kind of legal uh, solution because a lot of it boils down to cultural and the expectations of what what is proper behavior. I'll give you an example is uh, I saw a survey a number of years ago in which uh, they asked Chinese, have you or anyone you know paid a bribe in the past three years? The result was 7%, which is kind of shocking. And of course, well, you say, well, you know, obviously some people just lied. But, you know, when I thought about it, you know, there's a lot of what goes on into what we consider corruption. Many Chinese would not consider corrupt. So, you know, if you want your child to sit in the front of the classroom and you want them to get special attention from the teacher, you know, the teacher's not well paid. They certainly could use some help with their groceries. So, you know, give them a couple hundred kwai gift card. You're not, you know, in a sense, you're you're helping them because they'll help you. And you know, that kind of I, I think I think the, the issue there is what do you think is a bribe? What is a bribe as opposed to what is a gift? What is building a personal relationship, you know, kind of normal personal relationship, one of friendship as opposed to, you know, an instrumental quid pro quo. I come in and say, hey, hey Dan, Dan, give me an A, I'll give you, tw- I'll give you 20 pounds. As opposed to, you know, you're sitting in a coffee shop, can I buy you pastry, can I get you a cappuccino, uh, you know, that kind of you know, relationship building. And let me introduce you, know, you to the big public schools here in the UK, Andrew. You know, and they all end up in our cabinets. You know, and, and you know, you could ask funny thi- questions. About funny, that. funny thing that you know, look at look at our government. It's all full of you know, Harvard, yeah. Yale, uh, on both sides of the aisle. So yeah, I mean, it is. You're talking about a cultural climb, and in a society where you know it is, it's an it's an old culture. And it's one that that values traditions and does not necessarily look at things the same way we do in the West. Well, you know, are we imposing our Western values? Well, probably. Um, but then you get to your villagers in, in Guangxi, and they're equally outraged at the behavior of the padres. In a sense, you know, they're they're kind of outsiders to it. You know, other people are benefiting from those relationships, and until you can get you know, literally, you can get to the people who are paying the bribes and profiting from it. Until you can get to that demand side, you can work on the supply side all you want, but your progress is going to be much slower. And in in anti-corruption work, very often the emphasis is on the official side and not on the unofficial side, and not realizing that. In some ways, the major beneficiaries of corruption are usually non-officials. Yeah. Andrew, I said we were going to be about half an hour on this, and we have not managed to achieve that at all, because this has been a fascinating discussion, and we, we, we've um, we've covered so much, so much really interesting ground. Um, I want to give you one last chance to plug the details of your book. It sounds like it's going to be well worth the read. When's it due out, and who's it with? I've been working on it for a long time, and uh, I, well, I probably will go with this with Cornell, but I have no firm deadline. Um, My goal, my goal is the end of this year. Um, uh, What has happened with the book is I started out as one thing and then I was wrong about the earlier book and had to go back and criticize myself. The other thing I really, 
it really has kind of slowed things down a lot is a lot of the corruption work we do is in the past has been very superficial. We focus on the big cases. We focus, you know, on kind of uh, a lot of people use these indices like Transparency International. And the more I started working on this project, the more I realized that we don't actually look at corruption. We look at a kind of narrow slice of it. And there's a great deal that's going on that it's not invisible. But in the case of China, when you look at rank and file corruption, the numbers are daunting. And until about 10 years ago, there was no way to get at it because uh, it's not newsworthy. It doesn't even make the local Chinese papers. About 10 years ago, the Chinese government put together a database of verdicts. This is corruption and in criminal cases. They have posted on the internet over 100,000 of these things. Please don't tell me you've read all of them. Uh, no, I've read far too many of them. <laughs> I, I have, I have not gotten as far as I want, and uh, there've been complications of late. But I, what I really want to do in this book is, you know, it's part of the book is about high-level corruption, but I want to talk about mid-level corruption, and I also want to talk about rank-and-file corruption and how they interact, because high-level corruption grows out of mid-level corruption, and low-level corruption festers in the context of mid-level corruption. And so we have this whole strata in the middle we're not looking at. And the bottom line is, as you alluded to, where corruption really has its most visible impact is at the grassroots level. And yet, you know, there's very little attention to how that works. And so, you know, uh, there's a book published a number of years ago, the Gilded, China's Gilded Age by Anu Anyuan. And she looked at high-level corruption and said, well, he's pretty benign. Well, I tend to agree with her. But mid-level corruption, low-level corruption is basically the death by a thousand cuts. Each cut is tiny. Each cut in itself is insignificant. But compared to the drag of high-level corruption, I actually think mid-level corruption probably has the highest drag, and I think the low-level corruption also has a fairly significant. So the long and short of it is I spent far too much time with data. I should learn to just kind of... That's what political that. scientists do, though, isn't it? You know? uh, yeah. it's, it's, the, it's the occupational uh, disability. Yeah. But yeah, oh, I, it's, yeah. It's, it's coming along. I... I would hope to get a lot done this summer. I'm hoping to finish in the fall. And well, we'll look forward to seeing it. I'm sure it'll be, um, you know, if anything, if it's anything like the previous volumes that you produced, a fascinating read, regardless if you get bits of it wrong. I mean, you know, it's and it, it's very good to be to be as reflective and realise that not too many folks do. But I have an excuse because when I wrote the book, you couldn't see it. Yeah, sure. And what yeah. happened was with Xi Jinping's corruption anti-corruption campaign. There's actually a lot revealed by the campaign itself. So you couldn't see high-level corruption if all you could see was who was getting arrested. You can see the dynamic high-level corruption if you can actually get into the case and see not only when did they stop being corrupt, when did they start being corrupt. And this yeah. is this is you know something that you know that's kind of my me culpa is. I was blind and so were all of us. And now, yeah. now we can see. Um, so 
yeah, it's been interesting. It, it's been a, it's been an adventure. Well, that's and you know one can but learn from these things, right? And uh, exactly. And, and I, and and I think you know probably not enough folks do. You know it's very difficult to to be reflective on mistakes that you make, and we've all done them. Just did you know in different different times and different places. Um, Andrew, thanks very much for taking the time yep. to speak to us. It's been wonderful to speak to you, Dan. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, I hope your uh, your listeners enjoy it too. Yes, well, I was going to say. I mean, I'm sh- I'm sure that uh, folks will will be looking up your looking up the work that you've done and finding out more, and um and, and hopefully we're able to talk about China again sometime soon because it is oh, a fascinating sure. anti-corruption Anytime. case. Anytime. Great stuff. Thanks very much. All right. And uh, we'll, we'll speak to you again soon.